Well, I really thought I wasn't going to be preaching this morning. <laughs> Just the extent of the testimonies, I'm, I'm thrilled. I think, you know, if God can work in us, that we are ready to give a testimony of praise to God at a moment's notice. It's where we need to be. We need to live in His presence just all the time. His blessings are, are many. Yesterday, I think it's Friday night maybe, I forget, maybe yesterday, there's a song I think we'll start singing here. Every blessing you pour out, I'll, remember it? I'll turn back to praise. Maybe you don't know that song, um, but you will. And it'd be a, be a great opportunity. Every blessing that God pours out, we ought to turn that back to praise. And the blessings that He does pour out are rich and abundant and beyond your imagination what they are. Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We have come in our exposition of the book of Hebrews to chapter 2. Um, we're going to begin this morning in verse 14. As you're turning there, I want to make the observation to you, and maybe it's not new to all of you, but I hope you relate to me with this. Doesn't Christmas seem to be coming earlier and earlier and earlier every year? Um, this past year, Halloween was on a Saturday night, and uh, so Sunday we were here together. It would have been November 1st. November 2nd, my day off, Monday, I, uh, I found myself in Lowe's. I was returning something that we had bought before, and I walked in and uh, was greeted by a figurine of Santa Claus there. Just right, right prompt right after Halloween, there the thing was. Um, and so I commented to the, the gal at the counter, I was returning this thing, I said, wow, I guess um, Christmas comes early, huh? And she just kind of shrugged her shoulders, she didn't want to say anything. I said, well, whatever works. And I was trying to be commending of Lowe's. I mean, think about this, that if... Uh, if Christmas season lasts two months, I mean, that's like a sixth of the year's Christmas season. I think that's wise for retailers. It probably works out well. And, and then the week and a half later, uh, SR and I had our, our regular weekly father-son time. Um, and uh, we went to the mall, Cherryvale. And as we walked through the mall, one of the things we realized was that there was a big Santa Claus there, like to have the kids sit on there. We just, it, and I, I heard even some Christmas music being piped over that, like whatever, that's like six weeks before Christmas. Christmas is coming earlier and earlier every year, it seems. Um, just a fact of life, it almost seems. And even for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, Christmas is going to come today in some measure because our passage that we're going to deal with here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 have a lot to do with the great theme of Christmas, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Before I read the text, I do want to uh, highlight just a, a folder for you. Uh, Frank Yonke at the conference this past weekend showed this to me and he does this every year and I appreciate his efforts and his work with this. This is, uh, he's called the Christmas 2009, a celebration with the gospel mission. Uh, it's just a, a packet full of information that they're handing out at, at Kishwaukee Bible Church. It has um, just kind of a, a letter, has a, a hymn in here that you can sing as a family. It's mostly to help you families be a catalyst for your family worship, to devotion, to to direct things toward Christ this Christmas season. It has a, a reading schedule here, readings just all the way from November uh, next week through Luke, not every passage of Luke. And then even he's got some study questions in here so you can read a short passage of your family and kind of even talk about it as you think about and prepare for Christmas morning. Just even as today we had a, an opportunity to give thanks to the Lord. Hope it primes your Thanksgiving celebrations in your homes so that you'll just wherever you are, be those who would be giving thanks to the Lord. Um, you know, have a time maybe of sharing, maybe a time of praying, maybe a time of singing, and maybe this primes it. And maybe this also would help to be a tool to you to prime your home just so that Christmas isn't about gifts, but you're reminded every day what Christmas is about. It's the incarnation of Christ. So, we don't have any of these today, but the first Sunday in Advent is next Sunday. And um, Frank said he copied about, he's going to have about 30 of these for us. So, if you want one of these next week, it's yours. Also, there's a, a New Testament in here, uh, an ESV New Testament, Good News of Christmas, along with kind of an invite, invite someone to church, give someone a New Testament, maybe in your neighborhood, invite them to, to come to church, especially this Christmas season. Perhaps non-Christians might want to come and see what is Christmas about or you know, maybe recall something from before where they had been to Christmas as a child. Say, so, hey, why don't I just remember that? It would be a good opportunity for you for um, reaching out with the Gospel as well. So, we'll have that next week. So today is sort of Christmas, and uh, by that I mean that the theme of Christmas is incarnation. 
And it shows up here in our text, verses 14 through 18. I'm not sure we're going to get through the whole thing today. I might just get through verse 17. We'll see where we are. But the writer writes this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I said in some ways this is Christmas today. Christmas is in this text. Do you see the incarnation here? In the text, anyone want to shout out? Where, what verse do you see the incarnation here? Yes. Verse 14 and verse 17. Exactly right, Nathan. Verse 14, the children are sharing in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. And verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That is Jesus Christ coming and being made like us, like His brethren in all things. That's the great reality of Christmas, is it not? That the the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ Himself, God became man, lived among us, took on flesh and blood, and His name came to be known as Emmanuel, which literally translated means God with us. Now, one of the great realities of the Incarnation is that when Jesus came to live in the flesh, He didn't come merely to live. Oh, His life was important, but when He came, He came to die. Jesus Himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And when Jesus talked about giving His life as a ransom for many, He's talking about His death. He's talking about the day when He would hang upon a cross and His death would be a payment for many. Paul said it this way, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. In other words, God sent forth His Son to be under the law, to be incarnate, to be like us, so that He might redeem us out of that law. And how did He redeem us? He redeemed us, of course, through the cross of Christ. That is the great reality of Christmas. Oftentimes we can... Just hear it and not, not think about it. I want to give you an illustration here this morning to cause you to think about it. This is the reality of what took place at Christmas. Time of gift giving it is. Imagine that you parents have a teenage son. How many of you have teenage sons? Not, not many. One, Darcy. Okay, a couple of you do. Um, some of you only have daughters, so maybe your teenage daughter you can put in here. But I'm, when you see the gift you're going to give your son, you might be more attentive to the fact, okay, this should, be, this should be a son to make the illustration work better. But imagine you parents give your teenage son a brand new sports car, a BMW 650i convertible. Black and sleek. And man, we're talking fast. It goes corners with ease. Tires squeal like nothing. Sports car you give your son. And now you imagine your son is all excited about this car. And uh, he takes his car down to the Rockford Speedway and enters it into an event. And he says, uh, Dad, how about Mom, Dad, why don't you come along and watch me this event? And you say, okay, wonderful. We get a brand new car. We gave him, whatever, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. We forked out to give him a zoom around here. And when you get there, you find that your son is not entered into a race, but he's entered into the demolition derby. And uh, it's somewhat to your horror, but you see him start backing away and... <coughs> You know, crashing. Now, good news is he won the demolition derby because he was faster than all the other clunkers, but you're kind of shocked at this. You're, here's this great gift that then was given and destroyed. But yet, the, the good news about this is that, that that act became the very means by which you and he were greatly blessed because, see, somehow, someone, like, like of course, this happens like everywhere, okay? Someone had their camera and caught the whole thing on video and uploaded it to YouTube. And uh, like within a few days, like the whole nation had seen this thing, this brand new convertible, uh, crashed. You know, millions of people saw it in ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, or at your door, they're interviewing you, 
And uh, you, you, you come to have all this fame and then you have, you know, uh, lots of endorsements and you rake in millions of dollars and so you can give your son another convertible. And that, that was um, a horror to you actually became a great treasure. The gift that was ruined eventually became a great treasure and a blessing to you. That's what took place at Christmas. Jesus Christ is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 as a, as a gift, as an indescribable gift. But we took Him, mankind did, we took Him and we demolished Him. We crushed Him in a demolition derby. But His very death and our crushing of Him became the very life that we live. Because it's through faith in Him that we are reconciled to God. It's through faith in Him that we have no reason to fear death. Because God is no longer angry with us and our sin. His wrath has been completely satisfied at the cross of Christ. And there are other benefits that flow from this as well. Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with our weaknesses in a way that He could never do had He never walked among us. And He can help us in time of temptation. These are the blessings that come out of Christmas. The gift that was ruined was ultimately for God's glory and our good. And I think during this Christmas season, you cannot separate the incarnation from the crucifixion because the crucifixion was the very means and the very purpose for the incarnation. He came flesh so He could die, so God could come and bless us. The BMW 650i convertible had to be wrecked. Well, in our text, it's interesting this morning that the two are tied together. We saw His incarnation in verses 14 and 17. What verses do you see His death? Do you see it there at all? Shout it out. What verses do you see that in? Maybe it's not there. Did I, did I make a mistake this week? Verse 14, right? That through death He might render powerless Him of the power of death. And there's another place, remember? Can you see it? Verse what? Verse 18 uh, speaks about His suffering, yet has allusion to the cross. Absolutely. Yep, and there's another one. Verse 15 talks about our death. doesn't talk about Jesus' death. Okay, so 14, 15, 17 speaks it right there. So that He might become a merciful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll talk about that later. But propitiation is really talking about His death. His sacrificial Atoning offering the body upon the cross. It was through the death that He made propitiation for our sins. It's through His death that He satisfied the wrath of God. Now, the big question is this. Why is it that the writer would tell us these things? I mean, what's His purpose? I mean, we can just look at this and say, okay, incarnation, crucifixion, what's the purpose of this? Well, for those of you who've been here the last several weeks, you know what the purpose is. And this is the value of exposition because we won't just come here and just talk about this verse ripping it apart from his context. In the context, the writer is demonstrating that Jesus is better than the angels. That's what the, the whole issue has been about since chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus became much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's the Son. He's the King. He's the eternal Creator. That's what chapter 1 is about. And now in chapter 2... He's demonstrating how His role is better than the angels. Chapter 1 is about His being is better than the angels. Chapter 2 is about how His role is better than the angels. Because people could question this whole, whole incarnation. And we saw three weeks ago that lower doesn't mean lesser. Like that because Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, taking on humanity, but eventually then He was crowned with glory and honor above the angels. So the incarnation doesn't mean that He's any less. Last week we saw that suffering doesn't mean he's second class, or second suffering doesn't mean he's inferior. It doesn't mean that he is substandard in every way. Because we might see the angels who they're not suffering, but here's Jesus. How can he be greater? But we saw last week how his suffering was really the means of him being greater. And so also this week, his incarnation in no way makes him inferior to the angels. Or as I have entitled my message this morning, Death Doesn't Mean Defeat. Because the argument might be, well, Jesus not only suffered, but He also died, as we see there in verse 14 and verse 17. And the argument in the bigger context is, if Jesus died, how can He be better than the angels? <laughs> and that's where the writer says, death doesn't mean defeat. We see three victories in our text this morning. And we'll see, I just might get through two, and kind of, I've been thinking about that. We could spend next week just thinking about how Jesus helps us in temptation, so... 
we'll see how things go. But first, the first victory we have in our text this morning is in the death of Christ, we're free from death. It comes in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, therefore refers back to these verses 12 and 13, talking about how He's become one of the brethren. He's going to proclaim God's name to His brethren. He's going to be in the midst of the congregation. He's going to trust God like the brethren do. And He's going to have these children. Therefore, since He has children, since He's part of the, the brethren, and since the children He's a part of share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, Jesus by nature was not flesh and blood. He is God and God is Spirit according to John chapter 4, verse 24. And yet, because we are flesh and blood, Jesus Himself took on flesh and blood. In so doing, Jesus felt our frailty. As He walked upon the earth, there were times when He was hungry. When being tempted by the devil, He was hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's hungry. There were times when Jesus was thirsty. He was wearied from a journey and He sat there by the well. He was tired. He was wearied from the journey. He told the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. There were times when He was grieved at the death of His son, of his, of his close friend Lazarus and seeing how Mary and Martha are grieving as well. There are times when Jesus was so exhausted from ministry that He slept in this small boat that was being tossed here and there by the waves where the disciples were terrified to death. He's sleeping like a baby. I think it speaks to His tremendous exhaustion. He felt our frailty, hunger, thirst, tired, grief, exhaustion. But eventually, the frailty that He felt went clear down to His death. He experienced the frailty of death. And all Gospel counts talk about the death of Christ. They, they talk about His flogging by the Roman soldiers. They, they talk about the sufferings He endured upon the cross. They, they talk about the mockings that He received, the, the reproaches. They speak upon the cross on which He died and every single one of them record His death. And that's where verse 14 takes us. It takes us to the death of Jesus. He partook of the same that through death, that is, through the death of Jesus, He might do these things. He might render powerless him with the power of death, that is, the devil. And it's interesting here in verse 14 that the death of Jesus accomplished some things. It did some things. I mean, think about us. When we die, what's going to happen when we die? Is it going to accomplish something? Well, our bodies might be embalmed, or they might be burned up. Some of We'll have a funeral where all the people who know us will say nice things about us. Wish we could be there, but but we won't be there. We'll be in a better place. Um, and that's it. it doesn't, your death doesn't accomplish anything. Well, maybe if you're famous, like you did something good for the community, maybe um, like a street would be named after you, like like Garden Street, right, Rich? Garden Street named after you, or maybe some kind of park. Right? Dirk's Park, you know, maybe something like that. Or, you know, if you're really, really good, maybe some kind of stadium. Or, or if you've made a really big impact on history, maybe your, your name would be written in the history books forever. But, but think about it. Everything that took place there didn't take place because of your death. It took place because of your life. But in death, then you are remembered in those ways. But the life of Jesus is a lot different because it says that something happened in His death. His death caused something. His death accomplished something. It rendered the devil powerless. Look there at verse 14. That through death, He might render powerless Him or the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, death, the death of Christ was the means by which He rendered the devil powerless. Now, the devil has many weapons. You read about them in Ephesians chapter 6. He's got fiery arrows. He's got deceit. He's got trickery. He's got the sinful passions of our flesh on his side. He is a foe who still lives on. He's one from whom we need to run, but really he has no power. For those who believe in Christ, the power of the devil is nothing anymore. He's been rendered powerless. Doesn't mean he has ceased to be. Doesn't mean he's not active anymore. But in the end, he is powerless. Now, the reason why he's powerless is because Jesus has taken away his strongest weapon. Strongest weapon is the weapon of death. Without death, the devil has no ultimate power at all. 
Like one of the books that is most classic books of of all of Christendom is is this death is this book here written by John Owen Owen the Puritan who is a contemporary of John Bunyan. This book is called. Can you read it there, Nathan? What's this book called? In the death of death, in the death of Christ. How many of you read this book? Andy, a little bit. Uh, you haven't read this book. You've read parts of it. You've heard of it. Okay, you've heard of this book. <laughs> I'm asking, how many of you have heard of this book before? I know, Darren, you have, certainly. Okay, you've heard of this book. Uh, I've not read it yet, okay? It's a great book talking about the atonement of Christ. But it is. Think, uh, the title is worth this. On the, put this on your shelf. The, the, the death of death in the death of Christ. That's the great reality what this verse is talking about. Is that when Christ died, He gave a mortal... Wound to death. Death died in the death of Christ, and that's what Hebrews 2.14 is, is talking about here. Paul said it this way, 2 Timothy 1.10, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And in some ways, this makes the devil like Barney Fife. Doesn't it? You all know who Barney Fife is. My wife didn't. She didn't grow up with a TV at home. Um, bless her soul. She didn't. So she's not developed those TV habits that, that I have. And so it's been good for me, the refining of, of my flesh. Barney Fife, he played the, the deputy sheriff. He was the... Don Knotts played Barney Fife, the deputy sheriff, in the Andy Griffith show. He was the na- naive, gullible guy who brought trouble for Andy the sheriff. He's getting Andy in trouble all the time. But the, the redeeming thing about him was that he had a zeal for law and justice and, and righteousness and law enforcement, but too often times he would overreact with panic and, and despair or, or bug-eyed fear. You know, you just see Don Knotts and his eyes open there like that. You know, where He's a guy to take a minor infraction and blow it way out of proportion thinking that he's doing his job, you know. Yeah, Andy, I got him there in the jail cell, you know. All real happy and excited. And one of the things that Andy did for him, though, he recognized incompetence and he removed all the bullets from his gun. <laughs> and uh, he took that one bullet and he held it in his shirt pocket. And thereby giving, in some sense, a, a symbolic representation of the devil, if that's what Christ had done with the devil. Uh, yeah, the devil might still wear a badge. Have a name, Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, the serpent of old. But really, when he pulls out his gun to shoot, he can't shoot that death thing anymore. He's got to have permission from Jesus to put that in there, and then perhaps, but he has no power in and of himself. And the result of that, since Satan has been disarmed, the result comes in verse 15. Then he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The result of the death of Christ is that Satan's been disarmed and we have been set free. See, death holds a bondage over all of us. It's an appointment that all of us will keep. It's an appointment that all of us naturally fear. It's the day of our death. In Virginia, you mentioned it earlier in your testimony, just the day of your death. It's coming. It's coming for you. It's coming for you, Vicki. It's coming for you, Lance. It's coming for all of us. It's the day that we have. And all of us are, are naturally fearful of that. But since Satan has been disarmed, there's really no fear, reason for us to fear that day. As it says here, we've been freed from the fear of death. Death should no longer hold us in bondage. We are those who can look beyond the grave and say with Christ, say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, when you realize and embrace the fact that dying is gain... It, it, it no longer has such a pressure over you. I know in the matter of life, there are some times in which I'm particularly anxious about some event that is going to take place. You know, say some hard conversation I need to have, some difficult phone conversation I'm going to do, some, some event of something, I, and I'm kind of nervous, right? You, kids, you've experienced this before. You have butterflies. Ethan, maybe it's your first ball game. You're a little, little butterfly. Maybe not. Maybe if you've got to stand up and speak in front of somebody, maybe the butterflies are churning and... And you're thinking about that day that you're not looking forward to that day. 
But if on the other hand, you say, oh, on that day we're going to have a family outing or we're going to go to a picnic or we're going to go out to eat, then you're, you're no longer dreading that because you see that day it's a game day for you. And with a game day, you're all excited about it and you will go. And when you realize that death is gain, you won't fear that day anymore. But if that day is drudgery, you're going to fear it in your heart and in your soul. Because Jesus has removed the fear of death from our lives. So we can say that to die is gain with Paul. As believers in Christ, we can also sing the hymn, which by the way, we're going to sing at the end of our service this morning. I, I, I told Andy this week, Saturday, I said, here Andy, you know, we got it. This is what we got to sing at the end of our service. And we'll start singing this more. But we can sing this hymn. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before Your throne delivered from our fears. O Jesus, conquering the grave, Your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in You will in Your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise You evermore. See, it's not death when we realize the life that we're going to have on the other side by faith in Christ. And we realize that we are free from death. So it really comes to you. Are you afraid of death this morning? Are you afraid of death? Now, certainly I think within each of us there's a natural tendency to fear dying. What's that process going to be like? When's it going to be? Is it going to be quick? Is it going to be slow? Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be painless? And there is natural anxiety that we have. It's wrapped up in, I think it's wrapped up in our humanness. We'll battle with that as long as we live. But you fear death. If you knew what's on the other side and you knew the glories that await us in heaven would help. If you knew how Christ totally disarms Satan, we don't have reason to, to fear death. So where are you in terms of your fear of death? Is that an end day for you? Is that a day you're fearing? Are you in bondage to death? Listen to what John Calvin said in his commentary in this passage. He says, If anyone cannot pacify his mind... By disregarding death, let him know that he has made us yet but little proficiency in the faith of Christ. You understand what he's saying? If you've not got beyond this, this fear of death, you've made little proficiency in your faith. He's calling you a baby Christian if you have not got beyond the fear of, of death. And maybe some of us have only made little proficiency in our lives. But when we know, when the fear of death is cast off from us, we will know true power in our lives. I mean, think about it. What makes terrorists so dangerous? You know what makes a terrorist so dangerous? Is they're willing to die. They have convinced their minds that for them to die in jihad means that they have a harem forever. So, they willingly will strap on, will strap on uh, bombs around themselves, you know, and find a, a crowded place, you know, right here, and just go, and blow up everybody within 10 feet. It makes them dangerous because you can't fight that because you don't know who's wearing the bombs because they have no longer have a fear of death. Not for a wrong reason. But do you know what makes Christianity so powerful? So we don't have a fear of death. We remove the fear of death from our lives. Now, the weapons of our warfare are different. We're not going and blowing people up in a supermarket. Right? We're, we're not going and just wreaking havoc. No, we are those who desire to live quiet and godly lives. Yet others will hate us for our godly and quiet lives of righteous devotion to God. And it may be that they would kill us. 
maybe not in our culture. Maybe that's a long ways off. But that was the reality in the first 250 years of the church. Is that the Romans hated the Christians because the Christians were the atheists. Meaning they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. And so they killed them. And they killed them in, in great numbers. And, and persecution was a, a big reality in the early church. In fact, over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence. This has a great reward. In other words, he's saying, is your life is filled with struggle and, and turmoil and death may be on the horizon. But you just press on believing that you have this greater reward in heaven. And that persecution for these people were, were reality. And, and as, as this book was written, whatever, 60 A.D., probably about the date where people put this, because um, the temple was still standing. We'll hear about that later, but A.D. 70 is when this had to be written before then. They're, they're, they're believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, but as the years go on, you know, the great persecution, starting with Nero, the, and the siege of Jerusalem, and going through all of the different persecutions, the Diocletian persecution, and, and all of these, for 250 years, Christians were martyred, torched at dinner parties, for their faith in Christ. But, but because Christians didn't fear death, the Roman Empire took on a new name. It was then called the Holy Roman Empire. What caused it to change from the Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire? Christians who were no longer fearful of death. That, that enough Romans saw this in Christians. And... And they saw and they adopted the label of Christians, right? They did it by the blood of the martyrs. Those who demonstrated that love to Christ was more dear to them than their own lives. They took heed to the words of Jesus. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, don't fear people, but fear God who can destroy your soul for unbelief. And as the Romans saw the blood of the martyrs that was spilt upon the Roman soil, many became convinced of the, the reality of the power of Christ over death. So I say this to you, do you fear death? Christ came to free us from that fear. You know, maybe that is the root of so much of our anemic living. We've not died. We don't fear death. This marriage conference in Norm Wakefield was referenced several times in our testimony time. I just want to refer to it again. Norm, he showed a video clip from this movie called Band of Brothers. You know, I have no idea what that movie is. I don't even know if it's a good movie or bad. Is it a good movie or a bad movie? It's a good movie? Okay. I don't know anything about it, right? Because my wife didn't grow up watching television, so we don't watch television or movies anymore. <laughs> but it's a... He just showed this one scene. It's about a minute long. And, um, and so Band of Brothers is like a war, war guys, I guess. So somehow, you know, some kind of war movie. And in the clip, um, a soldier was explaining how he'd hid himself in a ditch on D-Day. And those of you there remember this, this clip, but I, I pulled it up on YouTube and I watched it and I got the words down exactly what it was. But the author said, so why did you hide? And he said, I was afraid. He explained how he went down D-Day, fell in a ditch, fell asleep and hid himself and didn't go out and find his troops, but he was afraid, right? He was afraid of dying and... And the officer corrected him and said, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function, without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends upon it. In other words, what this guy was saying was that you're in the ditch and you're never going to be a good soldier until you realize that I'm already dead. 
There's no hope in this life. I'm already dead. Then you can go without mercy, without compassion, without remorse and go and do your soldier's duty. But as long as you think there's still hope you're going to live, then you'll never be able to live appropriately. And so also our Christian lives. When we realize that death has been defeated at the cross of Christ, we can walk about in this life not having to fear Hey, maybe, maybe I'll live. Maybe I can live in this life. Maybe I can live in my pleasures. No, you realize that you're already dead. You realize that death has already been conquered and the life you're living for is not here, but is there. That will free us from fear. That maybe will be the power to enable us in our Christian lives to live lives of wholehearted abandonment to Christ. Well, it's further confirmed here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Angels can be divided into two categories. There are angels, which are good angels, which we call angels, and then there are bad angels who have fallen and sinned. We call them demons. The devil himself is the chief demon. Now, before the world began, well, in the creation of the world, before mankind was created... Actually, probably after mankind. Somehow, somehow, a long time ago, there was a universal, universal-wide rebellion of the angels. Best we can tell in Scripture, where two-thirds of the one-third of the angels. Boy, I'm I'm messing up today, right? One-third of the angels fell in rebellion to the to the Lord. The other two-thirds remained faithful to the Lord, and all those third that fell remain in rebellion against the Lord to this day. God's army outnumbers them two to one. But there will be a day when all these demons who fell shortly after the creation, because at the creation of man, God said everything is very good, but by the time of the Garden of Eden, there was something there that um, wasn't so good. Satan was there. There will be a day when all these angels, these demons, are cast into the lake of fire that's been especially prepared for them. And the amazing thing is this, is that God has provided no salvation for these angels. They rebelled against the Lord and they're continuing rebellion and God provides no way of salvation for them. This lake of fire has been prepared for these angels. God is not decreed in His sovereignty to be merciful to rebellious sinful angels. God didn't provide them with any opportunity for salvation. He didn't send an angelic Redeemer. He didn't send an angelic Messiah. He did not come to help the angels. He does not give help to the angels. But on the contrary, God does, as verse 16 says, give help to the descendant of Abraham. God gives help to those who are of the household of faith. He gives help to us, how? In providing us a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who has conquered death for us. And in that way, again, Jesus is better than the angels because He's done a noble work. His death was actually the means by which He saved us from our sins freeing us from death. That is the victory we have in Christ. We are free from death. Let's go one more point. The death of Christ, we are free from sin. We see that in verse 17. Therefore, as it says, He had to be made like His brethren in all things. There's the incarnation again. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse is rich with meaning. It is rich with with blessing. Again, it's talking about the Incarnation. It comes here in verse 17. He had to be made like His brethren in all things. He took on flesh. He took on blood. Was just like us. Was born a baby into the world, which we'll celebrate at Christmas time. Like all babies, he learned to walk at one. He learned to talk at two. He was raised by his parents. He grew in wisdom and stature, as it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He was educated in the rabbinic schools. He learned from the teachers, asking them questions. He learned a trade of his father, becoming a skillful carpenter, a skillful worker. He grew in favor with God and with man. His reputation you know, got to be known among other people. I believe that Jesus grew up was an average looking Jew of his day. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says there would be no special appearance that we should be attracted to him. He knew all our frailties. 
I mentioned earlier, hunger, thirst, fatigue, mental fatigue. He knew what it was like to be worn out learning in his mind. He knew what it was to be tired. And the reason why Jesus became flesh and blood is verse 17 here. So he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Packed with meaning there. A high priest. First time mentioned in the book of Hebrews is right here. It's not going to be the last. In fact, almost 20 times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as being the high priest. It's repeated over and over and over and over again, so much so that the writer of the book of Hebrews will say in chapter 8, verse 1, the main point of what's been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we'll be talking a lot over the next few months of what it means to be a high priest. Particularly from the book of Leviticus, we see what a high priest is. He's the one that that um, that enters the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the highest, most holy day of the Jewish calendar. It takes place on the tenth month, seventh month, tenth day. He would sacrifice this day. He'd go into the Holy of Holies, select among all the priests. He'd be the special representative to, to go to God before all the people. And on that day, he'd sacrifice a bull upon the altar. He'd get a basin of that blood and he'd walk through the veil into the Holy of Holies and take his finger and sprinkle it seven times upon the altar. Atoning for his own sins first. And then he'd come out and he would put his bowl there, or the blood, and then he would sacrifice a goat, I think is what it was, or a lamb or something. And he'd take that blood and he'd go in and this offering now is for the sins of the people, which he'd do the same thing. He'd, same thing. He'd take his blood in there and dip it seven times upon the altar. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. Thereby making atonement for the sins of the people. And if all went well, he'd leave the Holy of Holies alive. He'd walk out. Perhaps you remember in the story in Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was delayed, the people were worried a little bit. It's only when they came out, they said, what happened? Because something out of the unordinary happened. Because if things didn't go well, he'd be struck dead, dragged out of the Holy of Holies by the rope that was tied around his leg in case that happened. It's not unprecedented. You can read about Nadab and Abihu being burned at the altar for offering up strange incense. But that's the high priest, the one who offered up the blood for himself first and then for the the whole blood of the sins of the nation on the Day of Atonement, representing the people before God, pleading to God to forgive the nation of their sins. And it says here in verse 17 that Jesus became a high priest. It means that Jesus became... He was one of us. See, the high priest needed to be taken among the priests, from among the priests, from among the people. The priests were taken from among the people. The high priest was one of us. And Jesus became one of us that He might enter the Holy of Holies and then plead for our forgiveness before the Father. Now, the holy place He entered wasn't the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He entered the heavenly holy place. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. They say, not this creation. That's what He said. And not through the blood of goats and calves. But, He entered the holy place through His own blood. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption through His blood. See, Christ entered a heavenly holy of holies, of which the earthly tabernacle is merely a shadow. You read about that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. I trust you can see how the work of Christ is better than the Levitical priests. They offered up animals in the earthly tabernacle, and Jesus offered Himself in the heavenly tabernacle. See that again in chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy, Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, a perfect high priest who did not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people because it says in Hebrews 7.27, He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. Jesus offered His own life as a sacrifice in the heavenly Holy of Holies. Jesus is a high priest. He didn't offer up blemished unblemished bulls and goats. He offered up Himself 
the unblemished, spotless God-man. And so doing, He freed us from sin. That's my point here in verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, when Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest, in dying for us, He made propitiation for the sins of the people. He made propitiation for us. Now, that's a big word. It's a theological word. It's an important word though. Sadly, I'm not sure why the NIV didn't put this word in here. They just called it an atoning sacrifice. Make atonement. But this word propitiation is, is, is that. It is an atonement, but it's much bigger than the atonement. The propitiation, I'd say, is one of the greatest words in the Bible. I remember hearing of a pastor one time who was studying at seminary and he said that um, my whole seminary education was worth it when I learned the meaning of this one word. So you want to get something today that's better than seminary? Worth all the seminary education? Here it is. Propitiation. The word means that God's wrath has been removed in the sacrifice of Christ. Where once God was angry at us because of our sins, what Jesus Christ did was turn the anger of God from an angry countenance to a happy countenance. He is totally satisfied with us. There's not some still mends that we have to make. It is all done, paid for in the death of Christ. God is completely satisfied. We don't have to worry any longer that He's down looking down upon us, angry with our sins. Oh yeah, there, yeah there's that, that one sin I forgot forgot about that. Oh, I'm angry with Him now. It's not like that. In Christ, He has propitiated the Father. He's made Him happy. I'll close with this illustration how He's freed us from sin. Picture yourself in the day of the settlers. In the day when there was free land to the west. I don't know what way is west. What way is west? That way is west? Okay. The days of the west were, were settling. All you got to do is stake out your land and live on it. Settle your land and it's yours, baby. So, you know, you're going out there to Kansas, you know, out, out in the plains where there's prairie for a mile around, you know, a little bit of shrubbery around and you go and you, you find this place and you stake out and, and you build this modest house and you just try to make it out there and it's hard because you're out there with no stores and no people and you're just living off the land and on top of that there are Indians and difficulties and trials and all this, all this kind of stuff. But you're trying to make a go of it. And then, one day you wake up and and you, you look off to the horizon and, and you see out to the west. Okay, so you see behind us, out to the west, there's this big wall of fire. The prairie fire sweeping across Kansas coming towards you. And, and you look at this thing, smoke is every place. Everything's being totally consumed in the way and you know that this fire is just coming and, and your house is but little. I mean, it's kind of made of some wood that's you know, not real strong and sturdy and can burn you know, just like that. And so you're really scared about this and you're thinking, boy, I just got a couple hours. And you start gathering your, your stuff and figure out what you're going to do, how you're going to run from this fire. And along comes this Indian galloping in his horse come, coming off to you. And, and you know, you're, you're enemies with the Indians and there, there's no, no love lost between you all. You've had some conflicts with them. They think you're taking their land. But this Indian comes and somehow he knows English or he's, he's got some. He, he talks to you, you communicate and he tells you to start putting water on your house. So like, like right around your house, start putting water. It's like, what is that going to do? There's no way. This big wall of flames coming up, a little water here. We're never going to be able to stop this thing. It says, just, just do it. And so you, you start doing it. And as you're putting this water and you're going around the house because you've got this, this water and you're, you're putting it around the house. All of a sudden you see the, the Indian has set fire to the prairie right around your house. You're like, what has he done? He's betrayed me. And this fire goes up and you think the house is a goner. But you realize that just as the fire starts, it's real small and the water that you poured around the house doesn't prevent it in any way and the, the flames are, are rising up and then pretty soon you find that the flames then are going away from you. And they start going away and, and out about a hundred yards, you've got this hundred yard circle of burnt, charred prairie all around you. And then it's that flame of fire. Then when your Indian runs off to the... That flame of fire comes. It's coming before us and it goes right around that 100-yard area, right around. It doesn't even come close to your house. That's propitiation. The fiery wrath of God that was meant for you missed you. goes entirely around you. And it's a benefit of it. These Indians now think the best of you. They didn't know this other Indian came to make propitiation, to, to help solve, solve your problem of being burned by the fiery wrath of, of this prairie fire coming. And... You've appeased the fire gods in their minds. And now they're happy with you and they invite you to their festivals and their feasts. And now they're at peace with you. Just like there is peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the sacrifice of Christ is all about. The, the fire wrath of God has already been poured out upon your Son, upon the Son. And, and you form this, this circle of protection, if you will, in Jesus Christ. That God's wrath is no longer going to come upon us because He can't burn what can't burn. And our sins, they've been wiped clean. God can't hold us accountable to those any longer as they are forgiven in the death of Christ. He has made propitiation for our sins. Now, we're friends with God. There's no hostility between us and God any longer. There's no tension. He's not angry. God, through Christ, has transformed His wrathful disposition towards us to be one of blessing. His anger can no longer burn against you. So there it is. The work of Christ has freed us from death, has freed us from sin, And next week, you know what? This is such a great verse. We'll just look at this. It's also given us help with temptation. But we'll get to that verse next week. We'll just look at verse 18. So let me pray. Trust the Lord. And we'll sing this song, It is not death that I, and then you'll be dismissed. Lord, today is one of the most richest treasures of Scripture we have. Christ coming incarnate, to becoming like us, to die for us, to free us from the fear of death, to free us from the bondage of sin. And I pray, Lord, just like that soldier was confessing, may we realize that our only hope is to consider ourselves dead. Consider ourselves died with Christ. May our life be hidden in You Lord, that we would seek the things above, not earthly things, that You would help us. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are here this morning have a fear of death, which is unfounded and should be cast away, that You would help us in that. That You would show us the glories of Jesus which passes that. And for those here who are still holding on to a bondage of sin, they've never repented from their sins. God, I pray that You would grant them repentance in this day, in this hour, to show how glorious it is to know Jesus. To, to be in this protected bubble. The prairie fire cannot get at us anymore because of what Christ has done. Oh Lord, I pray You'd help us in these things to see how glorious is the death of Christ. Far from being defeat, where the death of Christ is our freedom. Freeing us from death. Freeing us from sin. So help us in this. And Lord, I pray as we sing this song, it is not death to die. I pray You'd, you'd sink these truths deep into our heart to realize that um, this world is a short time and what awaits us is far more glorious. So work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Why don't you listen as they play and Maggie and I sing this through for you once.